problem, John, is that the vaccine only works if you take it. Now, I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. The investigation into the death of Gabby Petito had a major development today. We do have new details surrounding her possible murder. But there's also an emerging question in the authorities' desperate search for Gabby's fiance, Brian Laundrie. Today, divers waded through a swampy nature reserve in Venice, Florida, uh, searching for laundry. Teams have been combing the area, ATVs, dogs, choppers, drones, it's been going on for days. Question, are they in the right place? Now, we know that authorities are there for two solid reasons. Laundry's parents told investigators he left their home on September 14th, Tuesday, to go to the Carlton Reserve and that he never came back. Second, his car was found there. But what if he never entered the park? Could this be a ruse? The parents are said to be concerned that their son may be missing because he hurt himself. Now, they got a lawyer and, to our knowledge, have offered up nothing else than what's been reported after being advised by counsel to remain silent. Luckily for authorities, other witnesses are coming forward and they lead to our new developments, not information about where Brian may be, but about the all important timing and circumstances surrounding Gabby's death. For those unfamiliar with the case, Gabby Petito was found dead on Sunday. She was 22. She was found near the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. That's uh, part of the journey that she had been on with her fiance, this cross-country trip with Brian Laundrie that started in June. Police stopped them at one point. You're watching video of it um, because of reports that they had been in an altercation with one another. And then they drove off. Now comes what could be a critical witness, a woman named Jessica Schultz. Now, she claims she saw Brian Laundrie last month and the van that he and Gabby had been driving. She saw them close to where Gabby's body was found this past Sunday in Wyoming. She gave her account to the San Francisco Chronicle, saying she has been in touch with the FBI. And then she put out a TikTok video. Here's her take. So I saw Brian Laundrie parking his van August 26th at Sprite Creek. So I'd already reported to the FBI what I had seen. So I, and I wasn't 100% sure, but now that there's dash cam footage of the van where I saw it, I'm 100% certain that I did see him parking his van and he was very kind of awkward and confused and it was just him. There was no Gabby, but that's only because as a van lifer, I was checking out their van and I was checking out to see if it was a couple or a solo dude. So it was a solo dude as far as I could see, unless she was in the back somewhere. But when I pulled up, he was driving still and hadn't yet pulled over. So I was like, hey, what are you going to do? Are you going to get over? Are you going to let me pass? Because it's only one car width of a road. And he kind of pulled over like halfway and made me drive out of the road to go around him. So I thought it was just really weird. The van was there for several days and nights and it did not get booted. The weirdest part about it was, was that there was no indication that there was anybody actually at the van. Um, usually small van people have their doors open, they're outside, they have a hammock, a, something. But we didn't see any signs of actual life at the van. So now you get to, well, what's the reliability of this. Uh, Schultz didn't comment to CNN, and the FBI tells us it won't comment on the report in the Chronicle citing privacy. So let's unpack what this could mean for the timeline. 
Schultz was referring to this dash cam video that other witnesses provided of what appears to be Petito's van marked near the Spread Creek camping area. That's where Petito was later found dead. Now, Schultz claims she saw laundry parking it there. She did not see Gabby. Now, if that is accurate in terms of Gabby not having been there, that could be relevant. She continued to notice it there for days, you just heard her say. So, what does that mean on the overall timeline? We'll show you. The last time the Petito family had proof Gabby was alive was on August 24. How? She FaceTimed with mom. Okay. So August 24th is the earliest day Gabby could have been killed. Now, I say it in very qualified manner. One, because we don't know. But two, there's a reason to disbelieve that. I'll get to it in a second. Over the period of the next three days, August 25, 26, 27, there were multiple texts between Gabby's phone and her mom. So she's alive. Maybe. I say her phone because there is some doubt on the part of the family as to whether the texts were from Gabby. One in particular seemed very suspicious on the 27th, according to her family. Now you fold in what this alleged witness, Jessica Schultz, claims that she saw laundry and the van on August 26. No Gabby, at least that she could tell, parked near where the body was found. Schultz told the Chronicle she also saw the van parked the next day, possibly again on the 28th, but again, no Gabby and no laundry on those two days, just the van. However, The idea that Gabby could have been killed in that time frame is subject to dispute. Why? Another new account from a woman who claims she and her boyfriend saw Petito and Laundry at a restaurant in Jackson Hole, Wyoming on August 27 and witnessed some explosive behavior. Here's that account. So Matt woke up this morning and he's freaking out and he's like, oh my God, I know, I know how he looks familiar. Nina, we saw them in Wyoming. They were the couple fighting at the restaurant. We were at this restaurant, you guys. Friday, August 27th, 1 p.m., sitting right next to them. They got kicked out of the restaurant and were fighting with the hostess. They were fighting with the hostess. She was hysterically crying. And she walked out and she, she was crying and she was staying on the sidewalk and I was watching the whole thing unfold. And he walked back in the restaurant and he's fighting with the hostess. And we, I, I didn't know what happened. I don't even know if they got kicked out, but they like left abruptly. And like, she was standing on the sidewalk crying and he walked back in and was like screaming at the hostess and then walked back out. And then he walked back in like four more times to talk to the manager and to like tell the hostess off. Now, look. All the drama and the intrigue can be dismissed. Uh, Gabby was crying because of the altercation. We saw her crying on video. Uh, That could be consistent with her behavior. The most important aspect, the critical aspect, is the day, the timing, August 27th. If this is accurate, that affects the timeline. Now, the witness you just saw says she and the boyfriend didn't connect the dots that the couple they saw at the restaurant that night was Gabby and Brian until this week when they started following the case in the news. A manager at the restaurant did confirm to CNN tonight that there was indeed an incident on August 27 and that they have contacted the FBI. This all raises a lot of new questions, questions that Gabby's fiance, Brian Laundrie, could help answer. But 
He refused to participate in any efforts to find Gabby after he returned home without her on September 1st. Gabby's parents reported her missing 10 days later. Why 10 days? We don't know. That's for them to explain. Her body was found on the 19th. Laundry has allegedly not been seen since last Tuesday. So what might these new witness accounts mean to investigators? And if Petito's fiance is found alive, is he vulnerable to arrest? Better Minds, Joey Jackson, CNN legal analyst, criminal defense attorney, and criminologist, Casey Jordan. Good to have you both. Uh, Let's start with the second first. Casey, and I start with you. If they were to find Brian Laundrie, is what they know so far about his behavior and the circumstances enough for an arrest? Do they have probable cause? Well, we don't know exactly what they have. They're going to need evidence, and we don't know what the cause of death was. So the first thing they're going to want to do is bring him in and talk to him. But if he lawyers up, and I know Joey Jackson's going to talk about that, and refuses to speak, and they don't have any physical evidence that can link him with probable cause to prove um, to a judge to get an arrest warrant that whatever cause of death took Gabby's life could be linked to Brian Laundrie, I think they need to get some evidence from him. Uh, We don't know what they have. We always think we know everything they know. But believe me, there are holdbacks that they are hanging on to so that if they can speak with him, they will get the information they need to an effect and arrest if it's in order. Quick bounce uh, question to you, Casey, is where they're searching right now. Um, There is a possibility that he went there, left the car there, but is not there among all the other possibilities. How does the FBI assess whether they're searching in the right place? They keep searching if that is the only option they have. I think the red herring uh, theory actually would fit here. I personally don't think he's there. He's too much of a puppet master and he's controlling the situation. And there's all this mumbo jumbo about the Mustang going to the park and then uh, getting ticketed and then ending up back at the parents' house. It would really help if the parents were talking. But I think the police are there not because they have any indication other than the parents that Brian could be there, but because they don't have any proof or any leads that he could be anywhere else. Mm. So if that's the best lead they have right now because of what the parents said and because, of course, of the Mustang being parked there, that's the one they're going to pursue. Okay. 50% chance it might go somewhere. 50% chance they're good there because they don't have anything else right now. Mm. Joey, the witness accounts, what do they mean to you? They mean a number of things. So it's important to put together any particular timeline to identify exactly what occurred, when, when, and how. So understand this, though. To the point in the question of probable cause, I believe that there's beyond probable cause to make an arrest. I think we have to let everybody know who's listening and everyone could have a different opinion about whether there's enough evidence, whether there's not. The distinction between proving something at trial and arresting someone prior to trial is huge. Why? Because when you go to arrest someone, what does probable cause mean? It means two things. Number one, there's reason to believe that a crime was committed, and two, that the accused committed it. So, you Joey, don't have let's to have do proof this. Of guilt. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. That is the law. That is the analysis. Let's apply it to what is known here, and you can make the case for why you think the threshold has been met. Let's take a quick break. We have to discuss that, but then also why everybody is hanging on the results of the autopsy. Why is it not enough to know that it was a homicide, meaning somebody else did this? There are answers to that as well. We have them. Stay with CNN.
All right, we're back with Joey Jackson and Casey Jordan. Casey is a criminologist and a behavioral attorney, uh, uh, analyst and an attorney. Joey Jackson, of course, defense counsel extraordinaire, CNN legal expert. Now, uh, we are discussing the latest uh, implications of new witnesses and the analysis of the search in the Gabby Petito missing situation. Now, uh, the laundry home, we are told that he returned from his trip alone to the house. Charlene Guthrie, who lives across the street, says, quote, he mowed the lawn. Him and his mother went for a bicycle ride around the block. Everything was just normal life. Once he came back, it seemed like nothing bothered him. Now, look, that's a stretch for her to know how he felt, but at least it places him at the home um, because even that's an open question. So, Joey, you were saying you believe if the fi- a fiance uh, reveals himself or is found, police can already arrest. Why? I believe that. Not only do I believe that, but I believe that prosecutors may already have charges under seal or they're certainly working on them. It's important when we have this conversation that we're not talking about a trial. We're not talking about proving someone's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. We're not talking about making a case to the jury. Clearly, we're not there yet. We're talking about a very low standard. That standard of law is called probable cause, which, as I noted, is reason to believe that a crime was committed and that the suspect under review committed it. And so what do we have? We have a plenty. Am I saying he's guilty? No, I'm saying there's reason to believe that you are responsible, sir. And as a result of that, we're going to accuse you of murder and we'll have you prove the case in court or disprove, as it were. What do we know? You go on a cross-country trip. You're documenting everything specifically with regard to where you are, what you're doing, who you're doing it with, the fun time you're having. You have that digital imprint, the blueprint. It goes out to the public at large. Then what happens? All of a sudden, it goes cold. It stops. And then what else happens? What happens is you go home and the person you were traveling with is missing. Subsequent to that, we determine that she's dead. And then you run or hide or wherever you are and you have clean hands in that regard. In addition to that, Chris, you have all of these witnesses which are really attributing to his uh, comportment and demeanor. And you have this fight between the two. Does that mean he's a murderer? No. But doesn't that at least give you enough to make the arrest and make the case? And that's all I'm saying. I think it's significant evidence. And I think in the event he reveals himself He's going to be cuffed. He's going to be prosecuted. He's going to be brought before a judge. And I think bail is going to be set. Two things. One, right now, uh, we don't know of any charges, as you said, maybe under seal. He hasn't even been named a suspect um, by police. There's no rush for them on that because they don't even know where he is. So then you go to the, well, why him? There are damning circumstances, as Joey just revealed, and his common sense would suggest to many of you. But remember, you only know what you show. This isn't about crowdsourcing a consequence uh, as part of like cancel culture. You got to know things uh, for real. You got to demonstrate them in a prosecution. So, Casey, that tells us to what picture is emerging. Let me play you an example of Brian Laundrie that fuels suspicion. Well, I was holding on to the keys because I just I didn't want to go anywhere. And my big fear is. I don't have my phone. I don't really. I don't have a phone. So she goes off without me. But I'm on my own. <laughs> so uh, I was saying, let's just go for a walk. And she was trying to get the keys for me. So I was just going, hey, just wait back up, back up. And that's when she hit me. And I, I didn't, didn't get. I don't want to push you, but I didn't get. I didn't get overtly physical. I was just trying to keep her away. And- Casey, what does this mean to you? 
Wow, I see so much control going on there. It's her van, but he keeps the keys to the van away from her. He's he's really just convincing the cops and probably gaslighting Gabby, convincing them that she's the one with the mental issues. She is the one who might abandon him and jump in the van and lock him out. He doesn't have a phone. She could just leave him there on the side of the road and go home without him. He's the powerless one. And yet, you know that the 911 phone call that brought the cops to bring uh, Brian, uh, pull him over, is because a witness saw him slapping her. And now he's saying he doesn't have a phone. And we know they're struggling over a phone all the time. Even even the diner um, incident, you know, the latest information that they were having a fight with a hostess. There's always a phone involved. And he said the scratches on his face were him struggling over a phone. There are control issues, which really are indicative of an abusive relationship, be it physical or psychological or emotional. You know, in criminology, we call them cobras. They are cold and calculating. They know exactly, we call them puppet masters. They know how to mess with the mind of their partner so that everything is their fault. And of course, then we see Gabby just after this statement saying, everything is her fault. She grabbed the wheel. She's the one who was slapping him. And you just have to wonder, she's saying that because she's afraid of what's going to happen to her as soon as the police depart the scene. And that's why it's so important to get the second part of the autopsy finding. Uh, The first part was that this was not natural causes. It wasn't suicide. It was homicide, meaning somebody killed uh, Gabby Petito. The question is, how? Uh, Those methods, that uh, way, manner of death or of killing her will be indicative of whether it's a crime of passion that leads you to somebody who is closer in proximity, knows somebody, uh, or was it something else? We're going to have to wait on that information. When I get it, I'd love to have you both back. Joey Jackson, Casey Jordan, thank you both. Good to be here. Thank you. All right. President Biden's agenda is at a crossroads, but because of his own party. And that is the tricky part to swallow. It all hinges on moderate and progressive Democrats coming together even though they know they have an existential threat from the other side, people who have demonstrated they will do anything to beat them. Are they risking helping their opposition right now? Congressman Josh Gottheimer was at a key meeting with Biden and other Democrats today. Where do things stand? Next. Is Joe Biden's legislative agenda in trouble? Or is this just kind of the workings of the big tent? It seems to be dysfunction in the Democratic Party. And it seems to be showing up in the numbers. Latest polling has 69% saying things are going in the wrong direction. The president's own approval numbers, underwater for the first time. Remember, polls, to the extent that they are helpful, are snapshots of a moment in time. And that's where Biden is right now. He spent the day meeting with key members of his party. That includes next guest, Representative Josh Gottheimer. Good to see you, Congressman. Great to see you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Hope the family is well. It's been a minute. Uh, Thank you for joining us during this important time. (laughs) You too. Um, So the meeting today, uh, we've heard different takes on the tone and tenor. Biden was good. He was saying you got to work on it. Um, But. What is the reality? Are there problems among members in the House, or is this really just about Joe Manchin? No, at the end of the day, we're going to have a very productive day on Monday coming up. That's where we're going to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package that we've been working on for months. It got 50 Democratic senators and 19 Republicans uh, last month, and now we've got to get it across the finish line. And this is a bill that, as you know, is so important 
uh, areas in New Jersey and the tri-state area and all across the country. We've got roads and bridges that are crumbling. We've got the gateway tunnel between New York and New Jersey, which is so important. And we got hit so hard with Hurricane Ida. It includes mm -hmm. key resources for resiliency to fight climate change. It's a critical part of the president's agenda and, and frankly, critical to the country. And now we've just got to get it across the finish line. And you know how this is. We're still working on other pieces of such important legislation, like the president's reconciliation package that I'm telling you right now, we're make, we made good progress on today. We're continuing to make good progress on. We're going to get both across the finish line. But for now, Monday, we've got to vote on infrastructure, take a big win, big bipartisan win for the country, and then continue our very hard work on reconciliation. I know you, Congressman Gottheimer, and you are telling me what you really believe, but you're also spinning the politics of your party right now. So I hear you, and I know how important the bill is, no question about it, it's very popular. But again, two questions. One is, Jayapal, in your party, says a majority of the progressives will not vote for this bill that you say you have to get across the finish line on Monday, unless the reconciliation bill is attached. And to me, that is a window into the obvious. You got problems among your members. And what you know, happens if they say you need both of these bills on the same time? Doesn't that at a minimum make Monday moot? Well, you know, at the end of last month, we all went to the House floor and voted to bring this infrastructure bill, the roads, the bridges, the tunnel, climate, to the floor uh, on September 27th on Monday. Every single Democrat voted for that. And, and, you know, I think we'll have the votes. We've got this, as you probably know, a masterful legislator uh, who's better at getting votes than anybody else, Nancy Pelosi. There's no one better. And uh, she committed publicly then and, and, and reinforced it again this week that she'll help get the votes. And so I'm really confident that come Monday, listen, it's a long way away in politics. There's going to be a lot of back and forth. But come Monday, we're going to get this done, get it across the finish line. And, you know, and I, I Without think- Without the reconciliation bill. Well, the record there is, as you know, the, the infrastructure bill passed the Senate. It's sitting in the House for action. It's written and done. The reconciliation bill isn't written yet. We're right. still working. We're still working on it. So it's the, you know the one in front of us that we got to get done now is on Monday. But we're we're still working incredibly hard on reconciliation, and we'll get it done. But we here's have the thing, to get Josh. That done. I'm not countering what you want to happen. Yeah. But your own people are saying no. I mean, let me just play Jayapal for the audience, just for context. We said at the time that that deadline was made that that's great, but if we don't have the reconciliation bill, we will not be able to vote for the infrastructure bill. What do you say? What do I say is that we can't afford anybody, any Democrat, to block the president's agenda. And we certainly can't afford to have any Democrat vote against infrastructure, which is why I'm, I'm optimistic, and I'm just telling you where I am. I'm optimistic that come Monday, the votes will be there. Uh, we're going to have to work together in between then and now, and uh, sort of between now and then to get it done. But we will. And uh, again, I, I am very confident about that. And, you know, why are you so works. confident? Help me understand. You've always been the smarter guy. Uh, that's why I bring you on as a better mind. But Jayapal is not known for being a liar. Um, and she's not there. She's not known for being a Brinksman uh, type player. She says, if we don't have them both, uh, we're not going to do it. The reconciliation bill, you could argue, is a bigger part of Biden's agenda than even the infrastructure bill. And this had all been dismissed along the way as just mansion and cinema. And now it seems to be as much about the House as it is the Senate. What am I missing in your confidence? 
Because when we in August agreed on this and came together and knew we had a bill that came out of the Senate, again, with everyone from Bernie Sanders to Elizabeth Warren to Joe Manchin voting for that infrastructure bill, sent it to the House, and we said, okay, we've got to bring this up first. It's too, we have so many issues that are, are facing the country, and, and you know better than anybody, those roads, the bridges, the tunnels, climate resiliency, we've got to get that done. So we all agreed, every single Democrat voted to bring it up in September. We're here at the date on the 27th. We also agreed to begin work on reconciliation, which we've been doing. And everyone, I got to give our, our, our chairs an incredible uh, uh, sense of gratitude for all they've done to bring this bill along. And, and we're almost there, but we're still working on it. We're going to get that bill passed too. But first, separately, we got to consider these pieces of legislation as they are. They're separate. They're two different pieces of legislation. We should consider them each on their own merits. And we're going to do that Monday. And then we're going to keep working. And I hear what you're saying. I get it. But the bottom line is we're going to keep working to bring everyone together. Again, Speaker Pelosi and, and Leader Clyb and, and Whip Clyburn and uh, Leader Hoyer are all behind it. We'll get there. The president uh, stressed again today just how important uh, the infrastructure bill is to the country and obviously to his agenda. So we're going to have to get there because I don't think anybody, Chris, at the end of the day, is going to vote to block the president's agenda when this comes to the floor on Monday. Mm. Well, look, that is the big bet. And Monday... You know, sometimes it's hype in the media, right? We try to make events out of things. Uh, you guys do too. But Monday is the real deal. We will see where the party is right now and whether or not you're going to be a help or a hindrance as a collective for the president's chances in your own. I'm, I'm ready to vote for it, man. So I'll, I'll I know you are, but you're I'll a moderate. Help. You're I'll a moderate. Help. And I, I don't mean that as an insult or even as a label, but, you know, you're about making deals and getting things done. We'll see how many of you guys are. Congressman Josh Gottheimer, uh, you are welcome back on Monday, sir. If you'd thank like you, to sir. come on and explain look, look the state of play. Look forward to seeing you, man. Always. Okay. Pleasure Take and thank care. you. Take care. Um, and uh, again, uh, Josh Gottheimer is a moderate, okay? The progressives are saying something else. And just a note to all of you uh, good people out there that are commenting on this situation and saying it's just mansion, it's just cinema. It isn't. There are problems on the House side of the party. Can Pelosi get people in line? Can Biden help her do that? We will see on Monday. But to say the problem doesn't exist is as foolish as the problem itself. Donald Trump has one niece. They're not close. Mary Trump has been warning the world about him. Now he is suing her and some New York Times reporters for the disclosure of his tax information. This lawsuit is very interesting and very risky. What is in it? What is not in it? And what could it mean? We have answers to those questions with a prosecutor who has gone after Trump in the form of Trump University before. He is surprised by this move. Why? Next. Donald Trump is suing his niece, Mary Trump, and several reporters from The New York Times. Why? Well, he wants $100 million because Mary Trump provided tax documents to the Times, which he says violated a confidentiality agreement that she signed. But the suit is so much more than that in terms of what it could mean, the implications, especially in terms of what isn't there. You know what isn't in the lawsuit? What isn't in his complaint about what Mary Trump and the New York Times said about him? There is no claim of libel, meaning defamation, meaning he doesn't say that what they said is false. There is risk here, and that's why he didn't say that. The president 
Every claim he makes, the former president, opens him up to discovery on the same and possibly sitting for a deposition. He would have to prove, for instance, that what they said about his taxes was untrue. How would he do that? He'd have to disclose. We've seen him do this before. He loves to threaten litigation. He threatened to sue me and my parents, saying effectively he wanted to damn me back to the womb. He was once in a lawsuit involving our restaurants and his developing of the D.C. old post office building. Most of the time, it goes like this from when he was being sued over Trump University. Uh, would you state your first You just say that you and I had breakfast together this morning, right? Yeah, it's under false. It would depend on how you meant it, how you said it. I think it's a statement of hyperbole. It's not a big deal. A statement of hyperbole. Let's bring in Tristan Snell, former New York State Assistant Attorney General who led the prosecution of Trump in a separate Trump University case. Tristan, good to see you again. What do you make of this lawsuit? You know, it's it's a curious animal. It's uh, it's part nothing burger, uh, but it's also uh, really, in my view, a publicity stunt. Uh, and then it's a very fragile thing. Uh, you know, you can liken it to a bit of a Jenga building where you're late in the game and the entire edifice is resting on one block at the bottom. If you pull that block away, namely this non-disclosure uh, contract uh, provision, the whole thing will crumble. Uh, but it, it, it's a very curious thing. A curious thing from the former president's perspective. Otherwise, look, it's very straightforward. What did the confidentiality agreement say? Uh, what was your ability to breach it? What would have allowed you to breach it? What would have, that would be their side of it to the extent that they have to answer and defend. From the president's side, what is the risk? Well, the risk is that he actually has to engage in discovery, be deposed, testify under oath uh, in a deposition. Uh, I think the kicker though, is that he's gaming the system. Uh, It's much like the Facebook and Twitter lawsuit from a couple of months ago that now everybody's forgotten about. I don't think these cases are ever going to get to that point. I think that the entire point of this is for him to go on offense, look like he's suing people so that his supporters will support his legal defense fund and put money in his pocket that he can spend on all of this criminal defense work that is the real issue here for him. Uh, I don't think he ever intends for these cases to make it to a point where he would actually have to give sworn testimony. They'll be gone by then. What's the chance that he actually sits for a deposition then? You say none, because he would never let the suit get to discovery. I say none. I don't think he's going to let it get to that point. I think they're playing a game here where they know that the litigation process takes so long that it's going to be a year and a half, two years longer. They'll stretch it out. They'll basically say, oh, no, the scope of the deposition is too broad. Oh, no. Uh, Mr. Trump doesn't need to sit for the deposition. They'll, they'll, make it, they'll make the other side go to a motion to compel with the judge. They'll stretch the whole thing out, even though he's the plaintiff and the one bringing the case. Usually the person stonewalling is the defendant. In these cases, I think you're going to see Trump stonewall because he doesn't actually want to engage in discovery. He doesn't want to hand over documents. He doesn't want to testify. Mm. Tristan Snell, the perspective valued as always. Thank you. All right. I want to show you what happened today with one of Trump's main bodyguards on the Hill, Senator Ted Cruz. He had some back and forth with a professor on the laws in his own state. And remember, Cruz is considered a legal genius and a constitutional scholar. Did you see what happened in this back and forth about whether or not 
Voter ID laws can be racist. I have it for you to see and then to discuss the implication with one of the truly better minds, Michael Eric Dyson. So smart, he's got three names. Next. Today, Senator and Harvard Law grad Ted Cruz, constitutional expert, appeared to get the short end of a debate on voting rights during a judiciary hearing. He asked USC law professor Fernita Tolson whether she thinks voter ID laws are racist. Here's part of the exchange. So it depends. One thing we have to stop doing is treating all voter ID laws as the same. Okay, so your answer, I, I, I want to move quickly, so it depends is your answer? Yes, it, that's my answer. Okay, so what voter ID laws are racist? Apologies, Mr. Cruz, your state of Texas, perhaps? Okay, so you think the entire state of Texas is racist. What about requiring an ID to vote as racist? Um, so I think, sir, that's a pretty reductive. I'm not saying the entire state of Texas is racist. You just but said my state of Texas. So you tell me your what about I- the Texas voter oh, ID laws is racist. So the fact that the voter ID law was put into place to diminish the political power of Latinos uh, with racist intent and it had been found to you're have You're asserting that. Intent. What's your evidence for that? Uh, the, dist- the federal district court that first resolved the constitutionality of Texas's voter ID law. Okay. So your view is voter ID laws are racist. How about you, Mr. Yang? I agree with Professor Tulsa. Voter ID laws can be racist. Okay, that's two. Mr. Sides? There are some voter ID laws that are racially discriminatory in intent. Hmm. Now, let's move past the shame of Cruz playing such a, a silly game. Oh, you called the whole state racist. No, the professor didn't. She said, in response to his question about what laws, your state's law. It's a dirty trick because it's not about the law even for a legal expert because it's about something else. What? Let's bring in Michael Eric Dyson, author of Entertaining Race. Welcome back to Primetime. Thank you, my friend. It's great to be here. What is your diagnosis of the debate? Well, it was a shenanigans. Uh, It was a sleight of hand. Uh, Senator Cruz well knows that this is not about the whole state of Texas being racist. It's about the fact that you can have a concealed license ID that will sufficiently uh, qualify you to get a voting rights, uh, to have your voting rights and to exercise them, but you can't use your state, your, your student ID. So we know in North Carolina, for instance, uh, until recently, when that law was struck down, that you couldn't you couldn't use your public assistance ID or you couldn't use your state employee ID, which are disproportionately held by black people. In Wisconsin, uh, until recently, uh, well, well, now they accept military, li- you know, live enrolled active military ID, but not the veterans ID. So the disproportionate impact on black people and brown people is sufficient. Then, when you add in the fact that it takes a lot of money to get the underlying documents. The reason a lot of black folk don't have state issue IDs, 25% of black voters don't have government IDs compared to only 8% of white people. Why? Because the underlying documents are hard to get. Then trying to get them as a black or brown person living in rural areas, trying to go to the document centers, paying the fees anywhere from 75 to $175. Now that doesn't sound a lot for people who are middle class and upper middle class, but for people who are struggling every day trying to make ends meet, 
this is a deleterious impact upon them. So when you put all that stuff together, the senator knows very well that even if you exclude intent consequences there and the disproportionate consequence on black and brown voters, and by the way, those who are other abled, disabled voters can be added in, and then you've got a nasty affair on your hands. So here's the problem. Polls of popularity. If you look at whether or not people want voter ID, let's say you take the Monmouth poll, which uh, we respect as a source, uh, from June, 80% support. Uh, There's another poll that shows that the number is similar even with non-white voters, uh, 80-84%. So if everybody wants it, why fight against it? Well, look at what Ted Cruz did today. It depends on how you ask the question. If you're trying to set it up with disingenuous intellectual intent and you're dishonest, then of course people are going to go, oh no, that's horrible. But when you disaggregate the data, when you break it down for people and you begin to ask them other questions, do you think it's fair for people to have to go for a certain distance to try to get this when they have other valid forms of ID? Well, no. Do you think it's important that people who have respect for the law and for government and have certain issued IDs, but not others, that they should be somehow disqualified? Then the answer is no. So it depends on how the polls ask the questions. And let's admit at the end of the day, when Martin Luther King Jr. was fighting for civil rights in this country, the polls began to catch up to where the conscience of the nation was. Polls don't always determine what we should do. They register our contemporary opinion that should be shaped and molded according to the principles and practices of democracy that we claim to embrace. How dangerous it is, is it for the Democrats if they do not pass the voting rights bill that is before them? It is awful darn dangerous. We got to stand up. Don't be feckless or spineless. Stand up and say, this is wrong. We know this is wrong. We know that the people are doing this, you know, rhetorical ledger domain as Ted Cruz was doing today, this sleight of hand. You know darn well that this stuff is not, does not have good intentions. It was good enough to elect old man Bush. It was good enough to, uh, good enough to elect young man Bush. But all of a sudden, there need to be vast reform when democratic power began to assert itself. This is not about the law. This is not about legal procedure. This is not about even the ostensible mess of the system, the hiccups, and so on. This is about a naked power grab, and the Democrats have to find their voices and their consciences and say enough is enough, and we have to pass this bill. Michael Eric Dyson, always intelligent, always a plus. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, my friend. All right, we'll be right back with the handoff. Monday will be a very big day for the Democrats. It will show you whether or not they understand what the true risk to their power is, which is not whether or not they get those two bills together or separate, but about whether or not they can provide a united front that shows the people who voted for them that they can get things done when in power. Monday will be a very big day. That's it for us tonight. Don Lemon tonight with its big star, D. Lemon, starts right now. And another big issue that they have to deal with, and that's voting rights that you were just talking about. And I mean, my goodness, Ted Cruz, is he the biggest self-owner ever? Like, that, was, that didn't go well for him. Nope. And, he, but you know what, though? Yeah. Here's the deal, brother. He ain't looking to win the legal fight, even though it has the guise of legality. He even said to somebody else there, oh, I forget about what the intent of the law is. What was the effect? You never forget about the intent of a law when analyzing whether it's discriminatory in nature. (laughs) Look, he knows these things. What bothers me about these guys, I'm never going to call him stupid. He's not stupid. 
You know, that's that's the game of the cheap. But that if was I don't a agree with you, you're dumb. Not, not that 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 line of questioning was stupid. It doesn't mean that he is a stupid person. But right, on. but he is doing it. It's gratuitous. Yeah. See, because what he is playing on is the obvious, the optic of it. Hey, what's wrong with showing an ID? Everybody has an ID, isn't it? What's wrong yeah. with that? Well, he Shouldn't should know. know. He showed one to go to Cancun, but go on. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to get on that plane. Um, and, you know, what he is leaving out is, of course, the pernicious part, which yeah. is if you ask somebody, hey, do you think you should have to show an ID and prove who you are when you vote? Well, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. I mean, people should know who you are. But you're not discussing what it takes to get that ID yeah. and who has them and who doesn't which is what and Dyson why said. they don't have them. Yeah. Because that is where the truth lies, but he's not about the truth. I try to explain that to people all the time. And what, what is accepted as an identification card, and I've, as ID? And I'm glad he said that because, you know, you can, if you have a license to carry that card, you can, get, you can do it. But if you're a student, your ID doesn't work. I mean, you know, or an EBT public card. Assistance. Uh, public assistance. I wonder assistance. who has public assistance public cards. Assistance. But you know who has public assistance cards? Poor people. White right? and black. Right, white and black. And I, I think you have to look, as you said, into the intent, and you have to do your research. Because people say that all the time. Well, why shouldn't you have to show an ID? And I say, do your research. And, and figure out what kinds of people don't historically have IDs or who... Um, who tend to have, who tend not to have IDs uh, as to the rest of the population. And so you gotta, you gotta look at all of those things and not just at the surface, as you said, ask a question or you know, some summary question like, oh my gosh, yeah, of course. Everyone's gonna say yes until you actually get down to the nitty gritty. And they know exactly what they're doing. That's and yes, right. is it you know racist? who doesn't know what they're racist. doing? The Democrats. Yeah. Because when you know that that's what you're up against, that they are willing to do anything to get power back, and you're going to fight with each other? Mm-hmm. And now look, I know people on the left will say, oh, stop. Stop saying the Democrats are fighting with each other. No, they're not. It's just Joe Manchin. That's just not true. Okay? Mm-hmm. Biden met with a whole Manchin bunch of House cinema. members today. Yeah. You just had a House member say half the progressives won't vote for the infrastructure bill on Monday mm-hmm. if it's not with a reconciliation bill. And it won't be. Yeah. They have real problems. They got to get it straight or they're going to lose. Yeah, I agree with you on the, the larger part again, as we said. But also when you dig deeper into it with the, the progressives agenda, not all of it is bad. Um, I'm not saying any of it's bad. Yeah, I'm but, just saying they're not going to get both uh, bills. But you get to a certain point where, you're, where, where I think that what progressives are saying, and again, I'm not a politician, but I think what they're saying is enough is enough. We've been asking for these things. We've been asking for uh, to get uh, the voting laws, um, to, to, to fix the voting laws, to get those on the books. We've been asking to help kids yes. and to help families. And um, Biden to, is asking for it. He's with right. them. To that help families, and a half trillion is his care, and all of those things. And you're not going to do We keep compromising and we keep compromising. Well, the whole idea of politics is about a compromise. So I understand what you're saying. 50% of something is better than? Than zero. But I think at this point, they've got to put up a strong fight and a strong resistance and say, hey, look, this is what we want. I think at the end of the day, I think there will be some relenting, a lot of relenting from all parties involved. But I think at this point, even the progressives have to hold firm to get as much of what they want as possible. And it's the same thing with those who are more conservative in the Democratic Party. They have to do it. And with the Republicans, everybody has to say, okay, at this point, this is what I want, and I'm not going to back down. And then, you know, when it gets to that point, to the finish line, the closer they get, I think that a lot of people will be compromising. That's how I think. That's what I think. But Well, first of all, we should want that period. Yes. Because deals are progress. And then the nature of the deal will become the basis of the next election. Yeah. But we should have deals mm-hmm. because inaction 
is death. Yeah. Well, we need a lot of stuff. I have got well to said, D. Lemon. That's why I love you. Run. Thank you. You more. I'll talk to you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.